12. Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Hear the word of God. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, In what way shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessings that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. And let us pray together. God in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful even for the rebukes of scripture. There uh, perhaps less easy to, uh, to listen to and to hear in the preaching, but uh, here is your word, God. Let your word go forth with power, we humbly pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was beginning uh, to anticipate what I'm now going to say in the prayer, and that is, and this is sobering, and this is difficult. Uh, it isn't easy to hear God's indictment against his churches. And this is what Malachi, in essence, is. He is preaching to the church in a sad state of decline, and it is filled with rebukes. This sermon is entitled, The Fifth Rebuke. Uh, And so, uh, it isn't the last, either. It's difficult to read and to hear when God is something against his church. But it is also good, I would say, for us to see the sad state of the church just prior to the coming of Christ. And that's what we have here. Let's not lose sight of that. And Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And Malachi was the last prophet before John. Yes, let us see the sad state of decline, if only to make us thankful for his coming. When we turn the next page and we find his coming in the first pages of Matthew. And also to be sober. And to warn us off similar things. If we're not guilty of these things, we still need to be warned of them. All of these things which tell us what a church in decline looks like. For one cannot read this book, and certainly I've always been struck by this, and not notice how much it has to say to the church today, the modern church. I look at the church today, And I think of what it was in my own experience as a Christian that led me to study in college at the feet of the reformers and then ultimately to come into the OPC. And I know many of you have similar stories. I think of that and to some extent I can say I know what Malachi knows or, or knew. I see what he saw. I see a church in decline. I see a church like Malachi saw that, well, their sins were so clear and so obvious and yet... Continually, the church said, where is our sin? I know what it is to look over the landscape and see that those who are faithful are few. And to see many of the worst sins, not in the world, but in the church. And to lament for Jerusalem. Although, let me offer you this bit of encouragement. 
I do not have such feelings for this church. I want to make that clear. If I haven't made it clear already, let me make it clear now. And I am sorry if anything that I've said up to this point made it seem that I do. And there is something of a sweet irony to preach this book, Malachi, uh, to the faithful evening attenders. Uh, And yet those, I, I would say, who know how to receive the rebukes of Scripture. For you realize... Uh, At once, perhaps they do not identify your sin entirely. At the same time, perhaps, to some measure, they do. That there is always something amiss in the religion of those uh, whose religion is right. Something which needs repentance. uh, Something which needs amending. And so, in that spirit, listen to the prophet Malachi's fifth burden in such a spirit. Perhaps there is, in some measure, something amiss in my religion. Though I would say again, I do not hold these things against you. Certainly not this in the way Malachi did. Though perhaps there is one here or there who really does need to hear this. We have in this passage two rebukes in one. Two things amiss in Israel's religion, which indicated once more a sad state of decline in days when things ought to have been better. Days that ought to have been better. Days of rejoicing and and religious revival. The temple restored. The people returning to the temple. And yet it was such a travesty. And the first uh, rebuke in this double rebuke is, uh, we find it in verse 7, a continual rejection of the ordinances. Malachi locates the sin, and this indicates the tragedy of it. It isn't just that that generation was guilty of it but that they were guilty of it along with their fathers. It was a generational sin, the generational sin of rejection. They did not keep, they did not observe the ordinances, just as their fathers did. Of course, there are exceptions to this. We saw this in uh, chapter 2, I think it was, so maybe it was chapter 1, when we read of Levi. There are worthy examples of worthy men that you find throughout the Old Testament and throughout the history of the church. Thank God for them. But we might also lament how few and far between they really are even in the sacred history of the Bible. And so we can say, and we see very plainly uh, in in Exodus, which we just finished, when God instituted the ordinances he's speaking of here, that that the fathers did not keep them. They were guilty of rejecting them from the beginning. And the whole history tells the the same story. God through Moses, again in Exodus, but then going beyond that in Leviticus, where we're going next, instituted... The ways in which and the means by which he wished to be worshipped. And yet again, we see they rebelled from the very beginning. It didn't take any time. In fact, God wasn't even finished and they were already rebelling. He wasn't finished teaching them. But the sad testimony of Malachi now at the end of the road, the end of the line in the Old Covenant, is that things had not gotten any better. How many prophets God had sent urging their repentance and uh, they persisted in their father's sins. If anything, things had gotten worse. What they were doing here is what their fathers were doing. They were neglecting the ordinances of worship in the temple that God had set up for Israel to observe, going all the way back to Moses once more. Only then it was the tabernacle, as you know. Here were, as we would speak of them today, God's appointed means of grace to bless and sanctify the people. God saying, if you want to find me and if you want to know me, look for me here. But it was those things that they neglected and they did not keep. 
And by their neglect and dishonor of these means, they not only dishonored God, but they dishonored themselves as unworthy recipients of grace. It was a mark of reproach upon the people of God to reject the very ordinances by which they were set apart. Look at this and think of God holding this against his church in any age. You've gone away, God says. You have not kept my ordinances. You have neglected them or in performing them, you did so carelessly. As we saw in chapter one, they performed the sacrifices, but in a careless fashion. And God notices when the church is doing that. And so I would ask you whether you realize and I don't know. How you couldn't realize this based upon scripture, although it seems the church today has forgotten that God is interested in our worship. He takes a great interest in it. He sets up his ordinances to be observed and he wants to know how it goes with his people. Here in a new covenant, those ordinances include very simply the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the preaching, the reading and preaching of God's words. The the singing of hymns, songs, and spiritual songs, and prayer. These are his ordinances which he asks us to observe. Yes, and beyond that, he asks us to do them with an eager heart and a willing mind. He notices not only whether you keep them, but how you keep them. Do we do so? Or are we like our fathers in Israel, still going away from them and not keeping them, It's a sobering message, but as ever, it is that the church, the church has become careless in worship. That's what we find then, and that's what we find so often today. What is the remedy? It's so simple, God says. How easily things might be put right, and all that is wrong is forgotten. Return to me, and I will return to you. You find that as well in verse 7. Yes, I've departed, God says. I'm not in your worship. You look for me in vain, as we saw earlier in chapter 2. They were aware of it, that God was absent. You come to worship me, but I'm not there. And do you wonder why that is? Well, if you really return to me, God says, and begin again to keep and observe all my ordinances, then you will find me, just as simple as that. I will be found again among the praises of my people. And so it's just a simple message of repentance to a wayward church. That is always the message. How willingly and how eagerly God would accept such a church. If only they would turn to him. But when we've turned out of the way and despised to keep his ordinances, we need not be surprised when we look for him in worship and we do not find, uh, we do not find him. But look here, verse 7 at the end, we find something similar. They object. You say, in what way shall we return? It's uh, the age-old sin. Brother, you've sinned. And he says, what are you talking about? And that's what you have here. Their sin was so obvious and they say, how can we return to you, Lord? We're not aware of the parting. But this is precisely how they ended up where they were in the first place. God tells them to return and they play stupid. What do you mean return? They had an amazing lack of self, uh, lack of self-awareness with regard to their own sin and their own worship. They acted as though nothing were amiss in their worship. 
How easily the sinner is deceived in sin and by his sin and thinks that all is right when all is wrong. God had departed from their worship and they still blamed God. Verse 17 of chapter 2, where is the God of justice? They didn't blame themselves, they blamed God. Well, that's the first grievance, verse 7. But the passage really has to do more strikingly with the second grievance. And that was that they had robbed God. Here was an answer to their question in verse 7. You say, in what, uh, or, or excuse me, in, 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 you said, in what way shall we return? And God says, well, in this way, here is what is amiss in particular. Here is the repentance I'm looking for. Or at least here's one thing you might repent of. Here's an obvious instance of your return. You've robbed God. And you ought to stop robbing God. You ought to start giving again. Yet, are you surprised to find, again, that they object? What are you talking about, they say? In what way have we robbed you? Here is a perfect picture of the sinner, always ready to blame God, never himself. It never occurs to him that when, th- when things are wrong, it's because of him and his sin. But God is not so easily fooled. When he, come, uh, when he comes, he does not allow this to stand. I mean, when he... Well, when he makes his intentions clear and he speaks to the church. No, it really is your sin, he says. And you have robbed me. In what way? Well, you did not give your tithes and offerings. That's what what God said to the church in that day. Now, as I say that, I am immediately conscious. And let me make clear that I am speaking to one of the most generous churches I've ever known. And I can rejoice in uh, the grace of giving in this church, just as Paul in 2 Corinthians rejoiced in the giving the church he was speaking of then. I think it was the Philippians. And so please understand, again, I'm not speaking so much uh, to you as Malachi was to them. But there's still much for us to learn from this. Here was a church robbing God and not giving their tithes and offerings, as I just said. And may I just observe as an aside, and perhaps as a very slight rebuke, how giving is here described as the ordinance that God is calling them to observe. A regular part of the service of worship by God's own appointment. And so we ought to view it that way by us. Here's the the small rebuke to just a few of you. You generous givers, you really shouldn't mail in your checks. Of course, we won't refuse them, but you really ought to give them and to bring them to God in worship and put them in the plate as an act of thanksgiving and praise, as an ordinance to be observed in the presence of God and of the saints. Of course, I'm not saying that you are robbing God when you do this. Only that you ought to view your giving as observing one of his ordinances for worship. I sometimes think just as a matter of convenience that I could just write my check on my desk, which I do. And then put it on the treasurer's desk that very day. So I won't forget. I'll write the check on Tuesday. Let's say, let me just put it on the treasurer's uh, uh, desk. After all, I just wrote the check and it would be easier. But there's a reason I don't allow myself to do this. And I leave it on my desk until Sunday. And then I offer it to God then. It's because of what I've just been saying. 
an ordinance to be observed, a regular part of worship. Now, this is not terribly important. The real issue here is that they were not giving or that they gave a pittance when they ought to have given more. Or perhaps, let us include this as well, that they were giving reluctantly as those who were unwilling and not from a cheerful and thankful heart. Again, uh, viewing as, as an act of thanksgiving and praise and worship. They begrudged the gifts they gave. You see, in those three ways, I would say that God is being robbed. And there are, uh, in that sense, many ways that we might rob God. A real tragedy here, this is something of a conjecture, but I think it's a legitimate one, and Matthew Henry makes it in his commentary, is that they likely looked upon God's curse, and God had cursed them, he says so in the text, as reason not to give, rather than reason to repent by giving. Matthew Henry says this, It argues great perverseness and sin when men make those afflictions excuses for sin which are sent to part between them and their sins. God was rebuking them by his providence and yet they were withholding their repentance on that very account. God withheld his blessings on account of their stinginess and so of course they blamed him for their want of giving. How inverted our thinking can sometimes be, especially in sin. How ready, let me notice again, we are to blame God rather than ourselves for our sin. In particular, we notice they robbed the temple. God says, you robbed me, but he clarifies you were robbing the temple. They were withholding their their temple offerings by which, in those days, the worship of God through the priesthood was to be kept up. And so, uh, we could describe this as the Old Testament church, which has an obvious corollary and parallel to the New Testament church. What they revealed by this, and just as uh, in their, their offering of the sacrifices, which were, uh, which were not worthy, they revealed their contempt for God's worship and God's ministers, their contempt for the priests, because the priests were to live off the offerings of the people. They hated God's church and his ministers. Here is yet another sad instance of declension in religion. I mean the church in decline. When the people do not support the church and her ministry, which very obviously depends upon such giving. When giving wanes, it is a sure sign that the church is in decline. It's a very obvious and easy metric. Whereas on the other side, it always strikes me that the health of a church can be gauged by such a metric. Not entirely, but there really is something to this. Do the people give? How much do they give? Are they happy to do so? Do they see the church as depending on their giving? Or do they somehow imagine that some other entity is supposed to make up for their want of generosity? Maybe some other Christian, maybe the state, I don't know. Well, having said that, let me pivot here by way of application and state our reasons for giving. Five reasons for giving. Some of which are found in this text and some of which are found in the New Testament counterpart, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, the first of which I've just mentioned, and that is the the fact, very plainly, and yet so often forgotten, though I thank God, not by you all, and that is that the cause of religion depends upon the cheerful giving of the people of God. 
Just as simple as that. Religion itself depends upon it. The flourishing of the church cannot happen apart from it. Do you realize very simply that there can be no religious worship, there can be no church in this world, but for the giving of the people. And let me underline that point by saying that this is by God's design. This is not an unfortunate uh, happenstance or the result of the fall. This is God's will for the church, that the church would be supported by the giving of the people. Supporting the church and her ministers. Again, not some outside entity, not the state. I find myself in disagreement with Owen here. I hope you will all read this book, uh, Duties of Christian Fellowship, and he speaks of uh, the duties of the state to support the church. I cannot agree with him there. It is the duties of Christians to support the church. The church is to survive and to thrive in the giving of its own people. Nowhere in Scripture do you find anything Anything else, uh, uh, anything suggested to the contrary, even if, <laughs> sadly, I have, to, I have to differ from my Puritan fathers whom I love. So I say again, the church is upheld by its own giving, and that is God's explicit design, which you find in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God would, in particular, and we find this here, supply the wants of his ministers by the giving of his people. Not only here, but throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul. So often he says, is the laborer not worthy of his wages? Shall I labor among you and not have my due? That's the sort of thing Paul would say. He even says that the willingness of the church to give, to supply the wants of ministers, but also of the fellow saints, and he seems to especially be speaking of this in Second Corinthians 8, that this becomes a test of Christian sincerity. Verse 8 of that chapter. The sincere Christian, Paul seems to say, is the one who gives. It's a very simple test. Of course, Paul says, I won't compel you in this. But I would test your sincerity by whether you would part with your money for the benefit of the church. The broader work of the church. We also see in those verses of chapter 8, as a rule of Christian charity or giving... That those who abound should supply the wants of others freely. Verses 13 through 15. And so we also find Owen saying in his book. And here I am in full agreement with him. In fact I'm in full agreement with the whole of the book. Except for that one idea of the state supporting the church. But rule number eight. Believers must support one another tenderly and affectionately. In their various circumstances and conditions. Bearing one one another's burdens. Now that's more of a spiritual idea. But then. As the next rule, he says, believers are voluntarily to contribute and share in temporal things with those who are truly poor in a way that is suitable to their necessities, wants, and afflictions. Those who abound are are to supply the wants of those who lack. And so the cause of religion is bound up in the giving of the people. That's what I'm saying. But the second thing I would note as, uh, as we are applying this to ourselves And I would especially underline and stress this point, though I've done so already in the sermon, and that is that God takes notice. He sees. He sees and he notices what you give and the spirit in which you give. Now, I hope that you all know, and I can honestly say that I don't have the slightest clue what any one of you gives. I never have and I never will. For obvious reasons, 
so that I do not show favoritism to those who give in abundance or begrudge those who do not? Let me make that clear. Although not as though to contradict the prior point, as a test of Christian sincerity, there is, of course, something highly defective and insincere about the Christian who does not give, especially when there's some great need. And there's room for the minister to remind the people of this, even personally. You ought to be giving. I'm doing that now. But I don't know what you give. Let a minister be in the dark as to what the people give. But I can tell you at the same time that God is not in the dark, not for a single moment, but that he sees every penny that you give and the heart in which you give it. All that you give in the the service of the church, let me be clear about that. Is that not the point of the story of the widow's two mites? Jesus looking over the, the offerings in the temple, noticing what the great men gave, but taking special notice of what this poor widow gave. And delighting in it. It it tells us a lot about uh, the spirit in which we ought to give. But it also reminds us that God is observing all along. And here's what God has to say as he takes note of our giving. That he takes it as a great affront to himself to be robbed of offerings. Just as on the other side he loves and delights in the cheerful giver. You find both things being said in scripture. I hate that you should rob me, God says. But he also says in another place, I love, I delight in the cheerful giver. Notice the personal language. He deems it as done to himself in either case, either as an affront to himself or uh, and that which is withheld from him or else as that which is given to him. Look again at the offense. In particular, God says, you have robbed me. And then he calls the church my house. And do you notice the precise force of such words? How intensely personal God views all this. But I would notice next as a third point of application. How God encourages us. And and we as Reformed Christians I think sometimes become a little uncomfortable. And we aren't sure exactly what to make of this. Uh, But I'm, I'm here telling you that we ought to take this as a sure promise of scripture. God says, I want you to taste and see how good I really am. I want you to see how generous I can be to a giving church. It is true, he says, he withholds his generosity at first. He would have us to act upon trust. And so he's looking for us to make the first move. Because he's testing our sincerity, as we've already seen. But let me stress that he is a kind and a generous God. And he stands ready and willing to bless a generous people who freely give in the service and support of his church. Why don't, this is where we get uncomfortable, but this is precisely what God is saying. Why don't you just try and see? See what will happen. He all but dares us to try. See if he won't bless us. See if I won't bless you, God says. You know, it's amazing. God tells us not to tempt him, but this is not to tempt God. This is his explicit promise to his church. Why don't you start giving from a willing and cheerful heart and see what I will do? Do you really think, he asked the church, that you will be losers by me? Do you imagine, as the sinful heart sometimes imagines, that I, the Lord, am trying to rob you? Is that what's going on? Why not just try and see what happens? 
Do you really think that you can outgive God? And see, the Lord says once again, how easily things might be remedied and all offenses forgotten. If only you should amend your ways and your giving. God is not keeping a ledger. He's not saying you have to make up the want of 20 years of not giving. Just begin today. And all will be forgotten. And the windows of heaven will break forth. He stands ready, he says, to cause the church to abound. I will bless you, God says. A promise, let us note, which stands in the new covenant. Luke uh, chapter 6, verse 38. We find this in other places, but let me just find it on the lips of our Lord himself. Chapter, let's see, chapter 6 of Luke. Verse 38, he says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Measured back to you by whom? By God. And perhaps if we don't know this blessing, the blessing of God's abundant provision as to our temporal needs, perhaps we have our reason. Although I would immediately add as a fourth reason to give and to balance out the picture with the balance of scripture and that is that we must we must also learn contentment in every condition that the christian is not always in every uh, in every season of life abounding we must learn to be content with little and with much but let us never think that if we lack anything that we may not seek it from god That God is stingy somehow and that he is withholding from us things that we might need. That is not what contentment is. And do you realize that in the great passage on contentment, Philippians chapter 4, just before he talks about learning contentment in every state, he says, I want you to seek all things from God in prayer with thanksgiving. But don't be afraid to go to him and to seek and to ask from him what you need. Don't ever short circuit God. Do not ever imagine or begrudge him his generosity. Let me say again that he is far more generous than we realize. And it is in realizing that that true contentment is found. That God will look after my needs and my wants in every condition. And this is something that must be learned, Paul says. But it can be learned and it can be known, it can be known by experience. Again, let me say, never imagine that God stands in heaven withholding blessings from us. Or worse, that he would seek to rob us of what is ours. No, he is, and we realize this especially in prayer, he is a father to us. That's why Jesus tells us to pray to him as our father who is in heaven. Which means that we are sons. And he will give us freely all things that tend to our salvation and well-being in this world. He will look after us always. And he not only delights in the cheerful giver, but he loves to give in return. But in closing, as a fifth reason, let me state the great reason for giving from a willing and cheerful heart. And reading Malachi here, uh, as I've been saying, we ought to read Malachi, and that is with an eye to the new covenant, which is the only way to read Malachi. It's true to Malachi himself uh, already in chapter Uh, Three, and then again in chapter four, he's looking forward to the coming of a new covenant. And it is that coming of a new covenant that is the great reason to give. And it is that which the Apostle Paul stresses in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 is the great motive to giving. 
The great motive to giving is the rich generosity of God, especially to be found in the gospel. It's amazing how you can say that about everything. The love of God is seen in the gospel. We've been seeing that in the mornings. Well, so too is his generosity. And it just is impossible to question it once you realize that. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Here is a verse, I would say, that melts the heart. It, uh, it's melted my heart before. It's brought me to tears. The gift of God, even his own son. Now just spend some time with that, contemplating that. And what you will see is the great generosity of God. But do you see it? Far more generous than we could ever imagine. Yes, Christ Jesus is our great benefactor. And he was made poor for our sakes that we might become rich. That we might abound in every grace and become sons and heirs in God's house. And that a rightful place in heaven might be given to us. Do you see in this, not not only the love of God on display, but the rich, incomprehensible generosity of God towards sinners. That he gave the best gift he could give. That he did not withhold even his own son. Here is the gift of God. His son. That's Charles Hodge. Yes, and if he gave the best gift that even he could give. Well, then will he not also with him freely give us all things? Does that sound familiar? There's your argument from the greater to the lesser again. There's Romans chapter 8 verse 32. A verse I will never tire of quoting. But you see the idea simply permeates all of scripture. But you have to realize at the cross is that God is doing the great thing. The greatest thing. And if he's done the greatest thing, he will not withhold the lesser things. The promise of Malachi that God will, well, he will bless the church. He will bless the households of the church when generosity is to be found there. I'm telling you that that is a promise which stands in the new covenant. And here is reason to give. It's the best reason. It's that you can't outgive God. God has already given his best. Everything else that he gives is just extra. It's a bonus. But in seeking his generosity in reality, I've already found it at the cross. And that is what makes me give. That is the great reason the Christian finds to give. Not so much that God would give in return, though he will. Let me say that again. He will. By his own word of promise, I tell you, he will. You simply cannot outgive God. Just try and put, try and put him to the test and see what happens. See if he won't cause you to abound. But more than that, and much more than that, look here and see, he already has. He already has displayed his generosity. He already has caused you to abound. And let me stress, his generosity is not so much seen in your bank account, though it might be seen there as well. It is seen as abounding at the cross. And there he causes everyone who looks upon his bleeding wounds and faith to abound in the riches of his grace. And to become, to become, as I already said, heirs of the great king, heirs of heaven, and co-heirs with Christ. Yes, and if you should abound in this way, you realize it is nothing to give a few pennies to God in this life. Indeed, nothing less than the whole of your life will do. 
your own very self. Pick up your cross and follow me, which you find suddenly you're glad to do. If only you might follow him unto his father. But if you've already done that, if you've already begun to follow Christ cheerfully, willingly, if you've picked up your cross and begun to follow Christ in willing service to the Father, then I do not doubt that you will give. And I am not surprised that you are giving so generously already and that you will continue to do so. Amen and praise God. Let us return uh, thanks to God now in a hymn of praise and response. Hymn number 522 and please stand.